it's my mic, I think. Uh, creating some issues. Hi, everybody. Glad you're here. Glad I'm here. Um, turn me down. Um, my name is Scott. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ in recovery from alcohol and drugs. Hi, everybody. Let me pray. Join me. Lord, you know my heart. And uh, who am I? Who am I to stand before you and look back and see what you've done for my family? Lord, uh, Susie and I are forever grateful. We, we see this every day and thank you and look back often and wonder how we got where we are. But Lord, it's basically these principles that I'm going to teach tonight. And somehow that we lived them out. Bless this lesson in Jesus' name, amen. So I am teaching a lesson tonight titled, Why the Twelve? Why the Twelve Steps? I get a lot of questions about that. Uh, recovery and the family. It's a lesson I've only taught once before, and that was back in 2017. And if you're here tonight, you fall in one of three categories. You are either married, and that means you have a family. Uh, you are single, and you're hoping to be married someday. And, or you are single and happily single and do not want to be married. No matter which of those categories you fall into, these principles are very, very important principles that will speak to you in your life. And they are the principles. I'm now the pastor of counseling, and I've seen the, uh, all the premarital counseling here for 23 years and much of the postmarital counseling. And th these are the principles on which we try to build a foundation for people to improve their, their home life. So... Hope you get something out of it. So I chose this lesson because I'm going to turn 68 this fall, and I'm well into a season of my life that I uh, was not prepared for. I'm not a good planner. But it's a season uh, that happened to me somewhere along the lines of between 60 and 65 where I began to really know that I was in the later seasons of my life. In other words, I'm getting old. And, and so as I looked at that season of my life, I realized that I don't have that many more years and I don't have that many more opportunities to share the things that I am most passionate about, about the lessons I've learned in my life that I want to share with everybody I know. So I, I'm going to take this chance to share this lesson because it is that important to me tonight. Um, I want to say, but before I begin, that everything I teach tonight for thousands of years was basic human knowledge. And then in the 1960s and then in 1970s, no-fault divorce was passed in the United States of America, and everything began to crumble ever since. So it's only 50 years ago, January 1st, that the first law that broke all of this down passed right here in this beautiful state of California. And we began a journey where now all 49 states, excepting New York, have a law that says you can divorce somebody just because you're having a bad day. You got gas, so <laughs> divorce them. So to begin, why the 12 steps? Why is this related to recovery? In my role, I get a lot of questions about the 12 steps, and in fact, it's basically my job description to answer them uh, for the region, sometimes overseas in the world. And I find there's all kinds of opinions surrounding them, but tonight, this lesson is about how they relate to the family. What are they about? Well, they're always about growing us up to become more like Christ. They're a, they're a spiritual program of action that, that helps us become more mature as, as men and women. And uh, tonight I'm going to kind of 
make some one, one or two points pretty, pretty firmly. Um, but I want us, no matter what you, where you are in those categories, in your past choices, in your family, to know God's grace has set you free from any guilt, but it is hopeful that he wants you to desire to understand and own these principles in your, lo in your life. So I'm going to begin with uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Scott has used this particular verse a bunch in his teaching lately, and this particular chapter of the scriptures is actually referred to as the love chapter. And so, uh, out of all of the Bible, this is the, the verses that seem to speak most profoundly about this thing called love, which is what we're called to be as believers, as followers, as family members. Love is our highest calling. And uh, it says in verse 11 that when I was a child, this is all related to the topic of love, when I was a child in regards to my ability to love, I... I talked like a child, I, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I grew up and became a man or a woman, I put those childish ways around me and I learned how to love, because growing up is all about learning how to love, uh, as the scriptures would tell us. And uh, the 12 steps are all about changing the way we think with the truth and the Holy Spirit and community and accountability and a process that grows you up in this ability to love, and ultimately... If we grow and stand on these principles and live out these principles, as difficult as it is sometimes, since it's God's standards, we can't argue that we'll be blessed. And I can speak to that in my life, especially as I look back and, and realize that the greatest blessing of my entire life on this planet Earth was that somehow God saved my family when we basically had no hope because of a horrible season in our life. So the 12 are about growing up, learning to love, so let's look at the word love. What is biblical love? Because if there's one problem I bump into, premarily, postmarily, is the misdefinition of the word love in the United States of America today, when we so easily cast the word out that I love hot dogs, and it means the same thing as I love my wife. And, and we begin to minimize what the word really means. So first, the 12 steps do a very good job of teaching us this, because they're all about learning to love if you look at them through that lens. Um, and by practicing these principles in all our affairs, we end up finding ourselves being more loving as we learn how to forgive and we make amends and we're honest and we're authentic and we don't have secrets and we work with a group and we open up our hearts to what Jesus wants to do. So what is love? What is love not? I, I got quick definitions for this. Love is a commitment. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, the love chapter says love never fails. Well, if love never fails, then love is a commitment to whatever you love, and it's unbreakable. What is love not? Please hear this. It's not a feeling. We live in a culture that's selling that at us at a thousand miles an hour through romance novels and TVs and, and children's stories. And, and, and love is not a feeling because feelings are fleeting. In our 38 years together this month, plus three where we lived together and didn't do it right, 41 total years, there's been plenty of seasons we didn't feel love towards each other especially when I got arrested. So, so does that give us permission to just end what our family was? Somehow it could have back then because neither one of us were following Christ, but somehow it didn't. 
and we survived and we remained in our committed love to each other and everything else in our lives flew that mattered flowed out of that so remember this what is love as you say you love somebody you should say i'm committed to you especially in regards to your family and you shouldn't say I love you premaritally, especially because you feel good with the person. I tell premarital couples all the time, just say you make me feel real good because we've all been there. <laughs> and, and we define that as love, then when it ends postmaritally, it's so easy for Satan to say, see, you don't love him anymore. The feeling's gone that you used to say I love you about. And, and it destroys family and marriages. So this is my experience it's what we deal with all the time in our counseling offices and i believe it's the number one lie in our culture other than jesus loves you and and i'll cover that here in a minute but here's tonight's proposition the one thing i want you to take out into your lives is this principle that are god's instructions for healthy loving relationships and our relationships reveal our recovery you want to evaluate how your recovery is going? Look at your relationships because that's what they're about. And you will never regret if you practice these principles in all your affairs I'm going to cover tonight. You may have moments of regret in your relationships, but in the end of your life, I'm going to close with this. You'll be so glad you stood on these standards. So... Um, if you're, you're in the group that's single and fulfilled... Um, take heart. The Apostle Paul never married, and he actually told everyone who's a believer that it's best not to marry because he said, in this life, you'll have many troubles if you marry, and I want to save you from that. Least taught verse in all of Scripture. Um, have you ever heard a pastor say, don't get married because you're going to really dislike it? Paul told us it's the truth, and today we run from our dislikes instead of hang in there. So um, let me take you to the truth. We've got to go back to the very beginning here to look at the foundations of what we believe as followers of Christ and believers in the Scripture. And I'm going to go to Genesis 1 and 2 where God created everything. Let's start at the beginning. For six days in Genesis 1 and 2, he created all creation. And at the end of every day, he made a proclamation, it is good what I made, the heavens, the earth, the plants, the animals. And then on the sixth day... He made his most profoundly important thing he, by all creation. This is so important for us as believers. He made his highest accomplishment. He made man. The only thing made in his image. In fact, everything else was made for this being because he gave dominion over everything in the universe to that man. And it was made for him to point to God's glory. And at the completion of making Adam, he made a very important and profound statement when he said it's not good for man to be alone important here god wasn't saying i made a mistake because god can't make a mistake he was saying i'm not finished because that man adam and every man thereafter isn't complete by himself and i'm going to give us this innate desire and understanding within him of a greater plan and structure for the planet and so he put Adam to sleep, and he finished his creation by making his helpmate. The, Greek, the Hebrew word helpmate in Genesis 2 is the Hebrew word edzer. Really important point. It means to fill in the gaps. 
He didn't make another Adam, no matter what our common culture is teaching us today, because Adam didn't need another man. He needed woman. And woman was different emotionally, physically, and it filled in the gaps that men didn't have in their nature. And unfortunately, we know after he completed Eve, the enemy entered, sin entered the world. We've been breaking the rules ever since. But he did something, God did something incredibly important. You need to open your Bible to Genesis 2 and look at this. As soon as he finished making Eve, he made the most profound statement. You've got to put the bright priority on this statement because it was the first thing he said upon completion of creation. He was done working. The universe, man, woman, he said, for this reason, man and woman, a man will leave his father and mother, be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The first words were God's structure and design for a healthy planet Earth because man and woman are different. And in the first moment, he said, my priority is marriage. And, and there's three parts to that marriage covenant that are so important to cover. The first, and because we've been messing it up. And the, the stories are everywhere that prove we've been messing it up from God's design. The first is that you will leave your father and mother. Okay, what's that mean? We call it leave and cleave in the Christian world. You may have heard that term. When you stand at the altar or when you stood at the altar and said, I do to your spouse, your family of upbringing became secondary in all things to your family of creation and nurture. And so how have we been messing that up? If you only knew. You know, in-laws and parents. In America today, the stories are legendary how they destroy marriage. They become absolute enemy of God's design. You know, they love their child. And their spouse mistreated you? Well, you need to get away from them. You need to divorce them. You need to, you, they're just bad people you married. That is a codependent evil mentality that is destroying lives, children, and our culture. And parents need to do one thing when children come to them saying we're hurting. They need to say we care so much, we've been there ourselves, go fix it. I'm not your boss or your fixer anymore. Because I'll only mess it up because I love you more than your spouse. I'm an in-law. And I know the problems in-laws can do. So, first thing, you leave and you cleave. You will, man will leave his father and mother. Second thing, that he will be united with his wife. The Hebrew word there is debak. It means permanently inseparable. How are we doing? Breaks my heart. No pastor I know is, has pastored the fallout of divorce more than me because I was a single pastor alone for 11 years of remarried and people who'd been divorced. And many of you have experienced that. Today I'm pastoring the kids who suffer the consequences of their parents' divorce. It's, it's heartbreaking to see. And, and, and so when you say, I do, on the altar, historically, it meant for life. Divorce was rare until the United States said, we're going to pass a law that says you can do it because you got gas. And everybody began to follow the world, and now we divorce for anything and everything that bothers us rather than sticking to God's plan and design. So you leave and you cleave, you become united permanently together, and then you become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. 
Well, what's that mean? Absolutely, it means you're to wait till you're married and you're committed to have sex. It means sex, one flesh. You become one person in the act of sexual connection. But it means so much more than that because once you're married, Paul speaks to it in Ephesians 5, it's a mystery that you become one with your spouse through a lifetime together. There's this mysterious oneness where you begin to talk alike and think alike and, and find ways to work through your disagreements that you just avoided or ran from in your early days of marriage. And you find your love changing from lust and the early days of craziness to depth of meaning because you've worked through so stinking much together, good and bad. So three things, you leave and you cleave. When you say I do, you better take it seriously. It's for life, so choose wisely, as Rick says. And finally, you become one flesh after you're married, which, hey, I know how hard that is. I, we didn't do it right, so there's no judgment, but there's consequences, that's for sure. And the older you wait to get married, I know, I know. It just becomes, okay, so much for that third part. Uh, but it also messes up the ability to have true oneness post-marily. So... Um, what does God say his purpose for this oneness is? Really, why is it good for us? Why is it his structure and plan? Well, let me give you some countercultural bad news. But the truth is never bad news. It's not for you to be happily ever after. It's not what marriage is about. It's not the oneness of marriage. Uh, Walt Disney lied to you. No, he really lied to you. And many of us are falling victim to that lie, right and left. I'm not happy. That means I don't love you anymore, and I'm going to find that love the second time with somebody else, the third time with somebody else, the sixth time with somebody else, because it never ends. It's never easier the second time because it's against God's design. And I pastored this. I'm being honest with you guys. So... Um, I want to turn to the most powerful scripture on marriage, even, I mean, the beginning's very powerful, but I want you to look at the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and look at what he has to say in Malachi 2, starting with verse 15. He says this about this oneness that instantly happens, spiritually bonding when you get married and make love and, and consummate the marriage and you're bound together for life. He says, has not the Lord made them one? For, for those who are married, yes, he did. He made you one, and you can kick and scream. You can divorce 14 times. You're still one with that first spouse. You cannot change it because God's laws cannot be bucked. And it's in your mind. It's in your souls. It was your first love, your first marriage, and you can't wipe it off the map no matter how much you tell yourself they were such a jerk. It's just the truth. And uh, let's go on. He says, has the Lord not made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Here's the answer. Because he was seeking godly offspring. Okay, important clue. Why did he create this structure of marriage? So that he could create godly children through marriage. And that's the only way that's healthy to produce godly children. I've pastored the fallout of trying to do it any different. Look at our culture. It's, the evidence is everywhere that doing it differently does not work as well as doing it correctly. 
So um, he then says, he was seeking godly offspring, so guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Pretty clear. When we hit the, hit the skids and we don't like you today or this season or this month or this year, we hang in there. And our parents encourage us to do so. So listen and live this truth. He made this lifetime covenant of oneness because he wants to be known throughout the generations as the God of a covenant to us. That Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. And that's our model. And if he is committed to us. He wants us to live out the commitment he has established to us by never leaving or forsaking us no matter how much we hit the skids on him. And we all do. So... He's making it perfectly clear here that once bound, there's no breaking the bond. This is his design and, and structure as we stay together, working through the challenges, persevering like I taught two years ago when the suffering hits, developing our character, becoming more holy, not happier, and understanding that our faith and what it means to us is the most important lesson we can teach our children because he clearly says, that's the lesson a parent needs to teach to their kids above all lessons. So to review, the single most important thing to God is pretty clearly, I don't know that I covered this, your salvation. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, Satan's winning and God is greed because God created you to spend all eternity with him. And the greatest grief God can experience is your death and eternal separation from him because he created you to live forever with him. And your choice in that matter of believing and following will determine, and not even following, just believing, will determine the course. But if you're here tonight and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then Satan has lost that battle. He's, he, won't bat, he won't try to chat. He'll, well, he'll try to make you not believe. But he knows eternally he can't beat God because once saved, always saved. So what's he coming after? The next most important thing to God, your family. And it's the second most important thing to God, as sure as Scripture says. And when he comes after your family, he's going to try to get you to disbelieve everything I've taught tonight. So, let's go on. God sure does. It doesn't get easier. He goes on forcefully and vehemently to make this point in the very next verse. I'd like to hear his voice because I don't know how strongly he makes this but it comes across pretty strongly. He says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. That's pretty strong words from the God himself. It's my well-reasoned proposition tonight that he hates it worse than any other thing on this planet rather than your failure to receive Christ as your salvation. There's nothing that breaks God's heart more than you divorcing your spouse because it's his plan from the beginning for a healthy life on planet earth so he goes on to say this in, in the next verse it's important he says i hate divorce as the lord god of israel and i also hate a man or a woman covering himself with violence as well as with his garment says the lord almighty he says this is me speaking I am God. I'm the Lord Almighty. What I'm saying is profoundly important. And he says he hates a man covering himself with violence. Well, that's weird. What's that got to do with divorce? Most divorces don't have physical violence in them. So what's he talking about? This is a good reason to get into Bible studies, to do your deeper understanding of what the scriptures have to say. 
because you wouldn't understand because any logical mind would say violence means a man's fighting people or punching his wife or what, what the heck's God talking about because violence is physical. And that's not what the word means in the original language. It means, the, Greek, the Hebrew word there is Hamas. It's not the Palestinian word that refers to Hamas as a Palestinian organization we know through the news. It's a Hebrew word that doesn't mean physical violence. It means gross, unbelievable immorality against the Lord God Almighty. And so when you read the scriptures, and violence is throughout the Old Testament in that Hebrew word, don't think of it. Try to discern, because sometimes it's physical violence, but most of the time it's not. It means gross immorality against God himself. So let me go back to the story of Noah, and we'll, we'll finish this. But uh, Well, i got some ways to go. But um, Genesis 6, 2, in the days of Noah... We know the story. We're told this. God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Yes, you are. And the men saw that they were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Let me be honest. It was a horrible time for women. Men were stronger. Women were weaker. And there was no equality until Jesus came around. So men abused and used and raped and married any woman they thought was beautiful and said, you're mine, you're coming with me. So men had harems of wives. Why is that important to what, where we're going? It broke God's design of one man, one woman, a healthy nuclear family, which was his structure from, before the, be from the beginning, at least us, from before beginning in his eyes. And um, it goes on to say that Noah alone was a righteous man. Well, what do we know about Noah? Why would we discern he alone was righteous? He was the only man on the planet who had a wife, one wife, and a family. Only one left who stood by the structure that God designed from the beginning of time. So God said, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. Directly related to Malachi, the violence wasn't physical violence as we would read. It was a violence against the marriage and structure plan that God had designed from the beginning of time. It goes on to say that God said, I'm going to put an end to all the people. I can imagine his grief. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. There was no, only one man on the planet who stood by God's standards of one wife, one woman, sexual morality, and a family. And... He goes on to drive the point home. I'll, I'll jump forward because what did he do with the ark? He had Noah bring two animals of every kind on the ark. Just for us to wonder why, to keep animals going? No. To drive the point, one male, one female would produce the offspring on the planet. And that's his design. Biologically, he created it. And it's his plan. And I tell you, if you read the story, and I encourage you to do it, that he writes in this book for us that he refers in the Noah story to Noah, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives over and again. So from the beginning, he says, I'm sending the message for all future generations that my plan is one wife for life, one man and his wife for life, 
producing godly offspring that bring me honor because they live by my structure and design. It's hard. So let me close. How do we do it? How do we do it? Five quick things. This will work. Stay committed at the highest levels to God and your family. When Satan attacks, the Bible says you give, do not let the sun go down on your anger and thus give the enemy a foothold. When we get bitter and angry and hold on to those grudges and resentments, Satan's all over saying, see, you should have never married that person. It's just a slippery slope, especially in this culture, to that train of thought. Second, work your program. All our hurts, habits, and hang-ups are born out of our, our family of upbringing. 90%. 90% of our hurts, habits, and hang-ups happen in the first seven years of our life when our character is formed. You know, we may have had some bad things later, and we may put more priority on them because we remember them more, but our problems are from our family, and in these programs, we work our family issues out. And we hear it happening. Testimonies of people who are working out their relationships and their families are being restored, and it's the greatest joy to God and to me as a pastor, let me say. Third thing, practice first with your families and never give ear to divorce in your life. It's the greatest wisdom I could tell anybody who's married because Satan's always whispering it, you know, and, and you just got to say, away from me, Satan. It's not an option in my life. I live by God's standards, not yours. And never enable it in your family. Don't side with somebody in a marriage. Tell them to go back and get it worked out. There's a church that can help them. There's pastors that can help them. There's counselors that can help them. But it's not you because you will mess it up because you love your child more than that spouse. And it's impossible to be totally unbiased. Be a part of a church, fourth, that stands on God's word. This breaks my heart. But today, the church is enabling divorce everywhere they are not standing on what I'm teaching you tonight. The churches are crumbling the foundations of marriage and allowing divorce for things like abusive behavior, which is the number one thing that just sets me off. Because is abuse wrong? Make no mistake, is abuse wrong? But it is not grounds to divorce. It's grounds to get help and work through it together and respond to it in healthy ways, not unhealthy ways. And finally, I'm sorry, I grew up in Washington, D.C., vote for candidates that stand for and practice these principles. They're getting rarer and rarer, but this is what matters. Our government is the beginning of the teardown of our culture because if they pass laws, it seeps into all our lives, just like no-fault divorce has. And in 50 years, everything has fallen to pieces from the way marriage was practiced for thousands of years prior because at the government level, they say it's okay. And suddenly we start saying it's okay too. So vote for the candidates that stand for boldly and proudly for family and marriage values. If you're here and you're single, please, in the process, I love counseling single adults. There's the way we're, uh, the American dating experience is the greatest failure in human history by a biblical worldview because of the consequences we see in the marriages we're producing. So 
I'm, I, it's fun. I'm not pounding you like I am tonight with scripture. I'm just saying, let's look at the practical applications of how do you fall in love? How do you choose wisely? How do you make a choice that's going to benefit you that you want to stay married to the rest of your life? It, it's fun. So turn to your church. So let me close with this. I've asked literally hundreds of couples in counseling. They don't come to me on a winning streak any more than people come to recovery on a winning streak. And they come into my office and they're sitting on opposite ends of the couches leaning over the, the arms as far away as they can get from their spouse. And I say, sit up, close your eyes for me. I want you to imagine something for me. Forget everything that's in your mind right now and just think about this. You're 85 years old. You just came out of a doctor's office. And the doctor told you you have two weeks to live, and it's done. So you got two weeks to look at your life, how you lived it, how you messed it up, what you need to do. And I ask them, in your thoughts right now, what will you value? What will be important to you in those final thoughts on planet Earth? Hundreds of people. I used to say every, every one, but I had one woman one time give me a, an answer. She was a very selfish woman. I'm just saying her life's a wreck. Never married, or she's been married most. Anyway, she's a wreck. She get, told me something selfish. But 100% minus her have always answered family in some way, shape, or form. Why? Because God set the rules. They may say kids. And it's easy for us in this day and age to say, see, they're more important than God, than my spouse. I divorced him, and the kids are better off. It's not true. It's not true. It's not true. We've covered tonight why God says, no, the most important example you can set is staying together at all costs. If you codependence, I'm not saying incurred abuse. We need to talk about that. But you still stay together at all costs if you can. Now we know the truth. Friends, let's live it out. I'm telling you, if the church of Jesus Christ doesn't do a better job because we're not doing a good job of living this out, our nation is doomed. Because you can look at all the stories and say, it's this, it's this, it's this. If we fix this, our, our land will be well. I'm sorry. The only problem we have in America that is of huge significance is the breakdown of the American family. That's the problem. And even the church isn't living to these standards. So let's live to them. That is why the 12 steps. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your truth. No matter what people's choices have been up to this point, and Lord, it's a miracle we've survived. Um, you forgive them, and you just want them to say, okay, I'll do better. I get it tonight. I get why marriage is so important to you, God, and why the evidence is everywhere that divorce messes up kids, and they have much less likelihood of turning out godly. So, Lord, thank you for the opportunity. I wish you would transmit this everywhere, not so that I would be heard, but that you would, Lord, because it's a lost lesson. They used to be lived out, and today is nowhere. It's radical in America's culture. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I went a little long. Thank you, guys. Let's stand and say the serenity prayer.
God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Go to group. We'll see you back in an hour. First time guests, meet Josh and B up on the hill.